Welcome to Workforce Rx with Futuro Health, where future-focused leaders in education, workforce development, and healthcare explore new innovations and approaches. I'm your host, Vontone Quinlivan, CEO of Futuro Health. We've covered many angles of the healthcare workforce on this podcast, and today we're going to focus on the perspective of one of the largest actors in the space, hospitals and health systems. With us to detail the workforce challenges and opportunities facing them, and what ideas and solutions are emerging from them, is Troy Clark, President and CEO for the New Mexico Hospital Association. In that role, Troy leads advocacy efforts with state leaders on behalf of his 44 member organizations and fosters collaboration with hospitals throughout his state to promote the improvement of health amongst the citizens of New Mexico. Troy has spent over two decades in healthcare in both operational and financial roles, as well as working in for-profit and not-for-profit academic environments. I met Troy in April when I delivered a keynote at the national convening of the nonprofit organization Comagine Health and its 100 members. I spoke on the best practices outlined in my book, also by the name of Workforce Rx, and how Futura Health put those best practices in action to address the allied health worker shortages. Many of those concepts resonated with what he observed independently. So, Troy, I'm so happy you are able to join us today and continue our conversation. Thank you, Vaughn. It's a pleasure for me to continue that conversation because it was a, I think, a breath of fresh air or a nice introduction to hear from someone who has put into place some of the thoughts and hopes that we've been discussing here in New Mexico. Well, I hope during our podcast, you're going to be able to share some of those uh, hopes and, and thoughts. Well, just to set the table, please, Troy, start by telling us more about what a hospital association does for its members and fill us in on who are your members. So uh, as a hospital association, we really represent the advocacy efforts for our members. We don't have operational responsibilities for them, but we work on their behalf on uh, legislation, regulation, and public perception to advocate to improve the health uh, and health care facilities uh, throughout our state. Of our 47 members, we've got 10 that are post-acute. So rehabilitation facilities, behavioral health facilities, long-term acute care facilities. And then the other 37 members are acute care facilities, much akin to what most people picture when they say that uh, blue H sign on the road where there's an emergency room, maybe surgery or labor and delivery, but an acute care setting. In our state, uh, of those 37, we've got 26 of our hospitals that are very rural. Our largest city, Albuquerque, has about 800,000 members. So uh, while an urban area, it's a very small urban area, under a million, we've got five different hospitals plus the Veterans Administration Facility here in Albuquerque. Uh, we are the fifth largest geographic state. And so outside of uh, Albuquerque, we've got uh, the remaining 1.2 million people spread throughout the rest of that state. And so we have very small communities, three to 5,000 that may have hospitals who only have an emergency room all the way up to facilities outside of Albuquerque that have oncology, have surgery, have cardiology, uh, some pretty well-rounded uh, facilities as far as scope of service. And then obviously we've got our level one trauma center here in Albuquerque uh, with a couple other large facilities that provide the care for our state. Well, that must make for an interesting conversation when you gather the mix of types of facilities and urban versus rural 
So tell me about these uh, 47 members. When it comes to workforce issues, what are the top concerns that um, often come out? You know, interesting. We're preparing here for our uh, annual strategic planning session, where we involve all 47 of our members, different than many other associations and companies whose strategic planning is really a board function. That is true within New Mexico and our hospital association as well. But at the early stage, we involve all of our uh, hospital members in the process, and then we hand it to the board to make the final decisions on those strategies. And we just completed a poll of all of our members as preparatory work for this. And the number one issue, far and away, for our 47 members is workforce. Uh, however, leading to our conversation of why I look to continue this. As we looked and pulled the members on those areas that they felt the hospital association could have an impact, only two of the 47 members felt like this was an area of impact. And having talked to my board, my executive leaders, there's a perception of what we've done in the past that really the hospital association didn't have a role in trying to solve the workforce problem. And I agree with that, and I think that's why you see it's our number one problem for our hospitals. But only two felt like it was an issue that we were going to address. I think that's because traditionally, what we have done is work with the state to try and increase funding to our centers of higher education to maximize the pipeline or the throughput of the production of a skilled workforce. And while we believe we have to continue that, that's not working. And the rate of change that those efforts alone. Can make is not possible to meet up with the demand that we need today, so we have to find ways to augment what they are doing and continue that work that we did in the past. As we look to the future, how do we augment that to accelerate that production of the skill sets that we need throughout our hospitals? In a similar vein, when I was executive vice chancellor of the California Community Colleges, there was a manufacturing association, trade association. And the head of that、uh, association would go around and have meetings with members, and she wanted to talk about savings on electricity and energy as the primary topic. But the the members kept bringing up workforce, and finally she said, "I gave up. I, it, workforce had to become a part of my agenda as a state organization." So I I think your pain is shared by other state organizations. You know it is, and it's the pandemic has made our workforce situation worse. But we really had a、uh, deficit in our workforce skill set across the country, and so when there was peak and in increased demand for healthcare skill sets across the country, you no longer could beg, borrow, steal, hire on a temporary basis to move to where the、uh, needs were, because everybody had needs. And so you get into that business as it's a different world to have enough, but to move the excess to where it's needed when you have no excess and you have no excess anywhere. And so、uh, it's interesting. You use that analogy to the manufacturing environment. What got me headed down this path? I a year and a half ago joined our workforce connections board here in central New Mexico, really with the idea to say we have to do something more. I know there's federal funding that comes into these. Uh, workforce connections boards, but I don't see it ending up in healthcare. I don't see any output and result, and why? And so I joined the board to find that out, and got connected or made aware of a successful situation in Texas where transportation and distribution had done something similar to what I was thinking of. Of 
how do you do something collaboratively to leverage the federal dollars with the existing higher education and state dollars and industry input to really produce above what is currently being produced and getting everybody working collaboratively on that. And it was successful. And I got really excited until I thought that's not in healthcare. And how do I get this mindset to take something from transportation and distribution over to healthcare? And lo and behold, about three weeks later, I hear you present at Comagine and everything resonated and said, here's someone who has taken a connection of what I've just heard about in the transportation and distribution sector and made it work in healthcare with allied health professionals. And immediately uh, cornered you at the end of your uh, meeting and didn't let you out of the room until I twisted your arm and said, we've got to talk more. And, and Troy, one of the things observed in the healthcare sector is that many of the hospital systems are very competitive with each other. What do you think it'll be like to seek collaboration amongst, you know, usually competitors? I just had this conversation as I'm preparing and cultivating our CEOs to come to this strategic planning session that I told you about and said, one of the reasons I believe the answers to that poll came back with workforce being number one on the issues, but dead last in what we think the hospital association can deal with is because of this mindset of we've been competitors. And the mindset has been, we have to go out and out-recruit employees from either our competitors within the town, our competitors within the state, our competitors within the nation, or even now international. That we have this limited workforce that we're all fighting for. And our history has been, am I a better recruiter or not? And those who are better recruiters and retainers have a better workforce situation than the others. And yet what we learned and succeeded very well in in New Mexico during the pandemic was that when we collaborate, we can still compete and we will all win better. And so I've got a mindset amongst my CEOs right now that I hope that when we meet next week, we can build upon and say what we were able to succeed on within the COVID era pandemic response. And we have 100% agreement that we would have all been in trouble had we not collaborated is to get together around the table and say, here's how you responded to the poll. And only two of you felt that there was a role the hospital association could play. And when it comes into trying to out-recruit or steal business one from another, that's really the wrong place for me as an association member to be. I'm trying to collaborate my members together. And you mentioned earlier that the natural tensions, for-profit, not-for-profit, academic, urban, rural, um, all different kinds of natural tensions that are there to get them to collaborate is what it's going to require. But I need them to think outside the boxes. This is an area they've never collaborated on. So if we are to present to them an idea where collaboration has worked, does that open their mindset? And if we took that poll again, my hope at the end of this is that result would be 47 out of 47 would say, you know what? I think there is a role the hospital association can play in trying to get us to collaborate and bring in the right partners to make something successful in an area where we are naturally throughout all of our careers just used to competing. Changing that mindset will be so, so valuable in terms of taking a different approach. And and I wonder, um, Troy, interpret for me, 
when these CEOs talk about their workforce pain points, what are the words that they use? What are the sentences that they use to describe their pain points? Unavailable, depressing uh, are two words that really come up. Challenging. Uh, this morning on a call with our finance committee, I think I heard about the upward pressure of salaries, the continued pressure for finding talent, let alone to uh, get that talent to sign on with them, but not even having enough workforce. And quite interesting, over the past six months, uh, we've seen a shift where all of the conversation in New Mexico prior to six months ago was around nurses and physicians. Well, we've been in a nurse shortage in this country for decades. Uh, New Mexico has a part of a couple counties that are not considered a HIPSA shortage area, so healthcare professional shortage area. The rest of the state is. So we've been in a physician shortage. We've been in a nurse shortage for decades. But now I hear more about the radiation technologists. I hear more about the ultrasonographers. I hear more about the certified nurse assistants. I hear more about the respiratory therapists, that there is just as much difficulty. In fact, this morning I had a moment of excitement from one of our CEOs to say, I finally have my first hired physical therapist starting next week. We've been without a physical therapist for over four months because they couldn't even find an agency physical therapist to come in. Not even a temporary one. Not even a temporary agency contract labor to come in to fill their needs. And this is a hospital that probably has a demand of eight to 10 physical therapists. And so this mindset in New Mexico has moved beyond nurses and doctors. They still are issues. We still need to fill those positions. But we have been grooming and seeding the thoughts with our members that we have to grow our own and we will continue to recruit from all places whether that's outside the state outside the country within the state but we have to create more because new mexico is not positioned to win in the out recruiting game uh, we've got a number of challenges within our state that don't make us the more appealing choice when it comes up against many other states and so we have to find those people who already have a love for New Mexico that live here and find them the opportunities to get the training so they can stay and be productive uh, suppliers of healthcare services in their communities, especially in our rural areas. Well, of course, everything that you're laying out is music to my ears because that's the work that we're doing right now, specifically uh, growing the allied health population, you know, the workforce from the diverse communities. Now, um, what is the situation with the rural hospitals, are their pain points different from what you hear otherwise? You know, they really are not as we look at them. Each individual one, maybe one is having a more difficult time with physical therapy, somebody else's respiratory therapy, somebody else's uh, surgical nurses, but the pain points are the same. They are recognizing that they don't have a workforce. And then on top of it, when they get a temporary workforce, if they are able to convince them to stay and become permanent employees, the length of time they stay is usually two to three years uh, and they move on. And so we commissioned a study about four years ago around physicians. We've not done it around any other specialty, whether it's nurses or ultrasonographers, but it really laid the groundwork for what we saw. And that is in the state of New Mexico, if we did a great job of recruiting a physician who did not grow up in New Mexico, didn't go to medical school or residence here, but we recruited them and brought them to a location in New Mexico. 
on average, they stay 4.2 years. If we are able to find someone who didn't grow up in New Mexico but did their medical school or residency here and do a great job of recruiting them, they stay on average 7.6 years. But if we find someone who grew up in New Mexico and did their medical school or residency training in New Mexico and we recruit them to stay, they stay on average 17.3 years. What a difference if you are only recruiting for a position every 17 years versus every four years. And the biggest difference that makes, since your question started off with around rural, is in our rural areas. Our rural hospitals average between 10 and 12% of the GDP of their communities. If they lose health care from their communities, if their hospitals have to close, it is a nail in the coffin for the economic viability of that community. We've seen that in communities that have gone from community sizes of 8,000, they lose their hospital, they're below 5,000 within a couple years. It's the economic engine in these small communities. And yet we suffer from what is unaffectionately termed the brain drain that our children are choosing to go to other states uh, when they get their training and find employment. We're having a hard time keeping them. And many times in our small rural areas, that's because they don't have access to education in their hometowns. They don't have the opportunity to serve in their hometowns. And when they leave to go get their education elsewhere, they stay elsewhere. And so efforts that we look for is how do we try to create situations where they can grow up in these small rural towns, gain their education through a telelearning experience, go on site for the few weeks that they have to, depending on what their specialty is, but do their shadowing and their rotations within their local hospital and then stay. Who knows their community any better than they do? They grew up there. So from a diversity and equity of delivery of care, what an asset to that community. From an economic standpoint, the hospital doesn't have to worry about workforce that's turning over every four years and or paying contract or temporary labor rates. They have somebody local uh, and they have someone who's committed to improve on the quality front because it's the community they live in that they care about and not to be negative towards agency or temporary contract labor, but they're there for 12 to 13 weeks. Quality is a lifetime journey. They don't engage in quality improvement processes because they're not going to be there that long. And so the hospital ends up suffering and the community ends up suffering from a quality perspective because they can't focus on continuous quality improvement. And so there's a lot of different avenues that we feel growing our own to augment the workforce that's already being created is so essential from an economic standpoint for our communities, as well as a quality and viability and quite frankly, a respecting of the diversity and equity and being inclusive of cultures within our communities. If you know New Mexico well, we are a very diverse state. We have a wide variety of cultures uh, between Hispanics and Native Americans, different religious sectors. There is a lot of different uh, cultural uniquenesses. What exists in one corner of our state is totally different in another. You referenced this a little bit, but l- let me ask you, what is your, your assessment of the higher education infrastructure for your rural members? And can it keep pace or can it deliver on sort of the volume of requests? So I would tell you that I think the current uh, makeup is most of our mid-sized cities have community colleges or junior colleges uh, with some form of healthcare programs. 
Most of our smaller communities don't. And those communities, to give a perspective because of our geographic size, we have four communities in our state that have more than one hospital. That's Santa Fe, Las Cruces, Albuquerque, and Roswell. Everywhere else you have a single hospital, and most of those hospitals are 50 to 100 miles apart. This is not like many parts of our country where towns are 10 miles apart, 15 miles apart, and each town has their own hospital. This is a very different geographic makeup. And so when I talk about these rural communities, you're talking about communities that already, for education purposes, may have a 100 to 120 mile drive to get to their community college that's closest to them. Then we've got two major universities in the University of New Mexico and New Mexico State University. I think our biggest challenge is with our biggest universities that they have a structure and a mindset that is built for a specific purpose and their ability to change and grow is not uh, able to adapt quick enough. It is a slow process. So we have focused our efforts really on our smaller centers of higher education who are more nimble. However, there's not consistency among those that uh, given what I said earlier in some of the geographic distances, we have some of those community colleges and junior colleges who are much more advanced down the spectrum of moving to this telelearning opportunity. We have some that are still very much in person, in class, you relocate to the town they're in, go through your education and go home. And uh, quite frankly, we're trying to change that mindset and encourage that change, but leverage the opportunity for those who are already ahead on the curve that when it comes down to that telehealth learning opportunity, you could be a town 300 miles away and accessing that care telelearning because it doesn't matter. You may not be getting your education opportunity from the school that is closest to you. So that helps us on two fronts. One, leveraging those who are already down that path of the technology, but two, leveraging that path to where programs may be, that the, maybe the school closest to you doesn't have a respiratory therapy program. So let's get you connected by telelearning to uh, the school on the other side of the state that does. And part of that, I think the role, I, I tend to talk a lot about their relationships with the high schools and getting dual eligible credits so kids come out and can be certified very quickly. But that's very old school thought that I even have to get out of my mind that there is a large portion of our population that would be what they define as the non-traditional student, the 25 to 45 year old who isn't in that group. Obviously, they're not in high school that we need to provide the opportunities and awareness for them to be able to select a healthcare career as well. To to be able to transition adults into these good careers. Correct. So in the field of healthcare, there is also the element of clinicals. The employer wants the learner to have spent some time uh, practicing the skills, especially on live patients. That often is a bottleneck area. And have you seen any creative solutions either within the state or maybe some of your peer associations? So it it absolutely is. And in in nursing, we call them your clinical rotations. In physician work, we call them residencies. Uh, In other industries, they often call them apprenticeships, right? It's that hands-on experience with real-life patients, but being proctored or mentored by someone with experience. So uh, you get the live experience, but you don't have the risk of being inexperienced. Unfortunately, what happens in most parts of the country, including our part, is higher education is limited by the number of proctors and mentors that they have 
to place on site. And so oftentimes these clinical rotations are done on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday mornings from 7 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. You go into hospitals that work with their centers of higher education and quite often that's when you will see students. Well, having a proctor or a mentor who has two or three students assigned to them, you can just see the workload and the experience they get gets diluted. And if you add a fourth or a fifth, you're standing and watching an inexperienced person do something and every fifth time you get a chance. And so uh, we have pushed and said, you know, hospitals operate 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We can increase the number of rotation slots Mondays, Fridays, Saturdays, Sundays, evenings. There's a lot of other times, but it takes the ability to have these proctors and mentors on site during those other hours. And so we spent time, our last two legislative sessions, our efforts have been to increase funding to our centers of higher education with funds that are specifically designed to increase faculty salaries and facilitate the increase of mentorships and proctorships so that they can start to offer these opportunities on those other hours that we've got and to look to provide opportunities for helping uh, subsidize the cost if we open up uh, rotation slots in rural communities that don't have centers of higher education. They would love to have students come through because one, it's additional helping hands for them, but two, it's an opportunity for them to interact with the students on more than just an interview basis to see who's a good fit and to recruit them to come to their facilities and see what their town is like. And so we've been successful in the last two years getting additional funding into our centers of higher education with the intent that that pays off. It's a little too early to see uh, as it comes through, but this year, the first year it was one-time funding. This year it got turned into permanent funding for our centers of higher education to act upon and actually to increase salaries and salaries being offered for faculty members. So uh, big steps that we've made, that's what we've done uh, in that realm to try and augment that existing uh, centers of higher education. Oh, that's outstanding work. Congratulations to your association. Well, it's a lot of work. And like I say, we, we now got to implement. Now that we got the funding, that's the key to step one. Now implementation is step two. And what are you hearing from all of your peers? Um, well, it could be specific to workforce, but also uh, with how the future of care is shifting. You know, in a good way that I agree with, but I don't think it's enough. I think my peers are seeing that the issues with workforce, we can't just rely on trying to do better than what we did in the past. Uh, I grew up playing sports and I kind of make the analogy that this, this effort is much like a coach that stands on the side and just says, do better. Well, his team doesn't know what to do, right? Uh, just do better. What do you mean? I, I'm already trying. Uh, let me train you and guide you on the different things you can do. So mostly what we see across the country is efforts right now in redesigning the care team makeup. We have a history of having a nurse assigned in an inpatient unit, depending on whether it's intensive care or med surge from two to five patients and being supported by uh, nurse assistants and then calling in specialists from physical therapy or respiratory therapy when patients have needs. There's a move now to say, how do we enable technology to maybe change that care team where there's a nurse that deals with medications uh, that can be remote and do the med reconciliation uh, remotely in a hybrid type model and carry on more patients and allow 
the RN on a floor to serve more patients, but have more certified nurse assistants dealing with a lot of answering of call bells, et cetera, helping people uh, use the restroom, all the other functions that happen to try and say, can we shift the care model team to match the disparity in what we have from a skilled trained workforce? And I think that's an important component, That, but I fear that if that's the only component that people move to, they're going to still be left shortchanged because we still won't have enough uh, nurses. We're over 100,000 nurses short in this country is the estimate right now, which I believe is low. So large numbers of shortages that if you think about how do we react to this, we can't just try and push more through the current uh, sausage-making machine and expect to get enough output. We do have to change the care team model, but we also have to find new ways to get people interested and certified or licensed into all of the different positions, including nursing, including our allied health positions, and including our non-clinical positions. Uh, You look outside the healthcare industry, I think every industry right now is talking about workforce shortages. That is true. That is true. And um, what about value-based care? Or preventive care? Are you, what are you hearing there, Troy? So lots of movement towards value-based care. There's been efforts for this over many decades. Uh, it's becoming a more popular buzzword. It means a lot of different things. There are uh, value-based care programs that are shared savings models that say, hey, let's collaborate on this between a payer and a hospital and physician group to say, if we collaborate on reducing the cost of care, to take care of members by doing more preventative care or moving to a lower cost of care scenario, then we'll share those savings with you. All the way over to the other side, a term not used a lot now, but is really common practice that people are moving to on the far end, and that being capitation, where a physician group and hospital take on full risk for the care and say, you provide us a fixed fee amount and we will provide all of the care regardless of what it costs, with the motivation, obviously, to try and keep that cost below what they're paid. Quickly, I think one of the big challenges that's out there right now, and we see it specifically in our state, if we've talked before, is how do you implement value-based care programs and initiatives in rural areas? You don't have a high enough population to take the actuarial results and the actuarial studies to direct new programs to try and lower that cost of care with low populations. You really need probably 25 to 50,000 people or more. And I told you many of our communities are three to 5,000. And so how do you seek for those benefits and invest in the infrastructure that it takes when you have such a small number and you don't see the return? So now I'm going to ask you the closing question which is knowing all you know about the future of care and all of these trends that you're seeing front and center, what advice would you give someone whose children or nieces and nephews are interested in moving into the healthcare field? Like what are the skill sets and education or experience that would position them well? I mean, what are some of those? You know, I think uh, this past few years has really been interesting on the perspective of healthcare, and I think it's sent some mixed messages to people out there, whether they're young or whether they're older, possibly interested in a healthcare career. And if you look at the beginning phases of the pandemic, our healthcare workers were heroes. 
many signs put out in front of hospitals. Uh, I remember in the first year of the pandemic, most of our hospitals had more local restaurants and people bringing in food than the workers could eat to try and sustain them and thank them for the efforts. And then as unfortunately the pandemic drew on and things became politicized, our healthcare workers saw the other side of the equation where they were quite often vilified. And if somebody from healthcare represented something different than someone's political feelings, uh, all of a sudden they weren't the hero anymore. Now they were the enemy or the antithesis of their political beliefs and treated them as such. And so I think that caused people to look differently at healthcare careers. Is that something I want to go to or not? And I say that all as a preface to say at the core of healthcare is compassion and caring. Uh, I look across whether you work in the business office, whether you work in the maintenance department, whether you work in registration, or if you work at the bedside as a clinician of any type, as a physician, as a nurse, as a frontline caregiver, there's compassion. People are not in the hospital because they want to be. They're there because something's not working right with their body, uh, with their mind, and they have to be there. And so you have a need in the healthcare workforce, I believe, to start off with compassion. And although I've never been a care provider, I've worked in hospitals, as you said, over two decades, my fondest memories are interacting with patients and seeing opportunities, the stories I have of where a patient either directly communicates or through body language communicates, you were there for me when I needed you. So I think those Individuals who have that desire for a human connection and compassion, what I would say is beyond that, the skills that you need, I would say bring us the skills that you have and have an interest in and let us help develop them because there's a lot of people that may not like bodily fluids and uh, blood and disease and don't want to be a physician or a nurse but may want to be in healthcare to help people and could be in the business office, could be in the dietary area, could be in the maintenance area. Or you could have some that maybe don't want to deal with needles but love to do ultrasound. There's so many different areas within healthcare that if you have that desire to be a caregiver, to be compassionate uh, and caring, I think seek out and talk to people within healthcare. And I guarantee you, we can find an area that you would enjoy fitting in. And that can be everything from the accountant to the physician. Well, that's a great way to end, Troy. Issuing a call to action to invite everyone who is interested in a career where you can demonstrate compassion and the human connection. It's so important to invite them into healthcare. Well, we've appreciated so much you sharing all of your insights and advice today. Thank you so much for being with us. It's been my privilege. Thank you, Vaughn. And I appreciate being in this work with you together. I look forward to that. We're going to help your members grow their own right there in New Mexico. I'm Vontone Quinlevin with Futuro Health. Thanks for checking out this episode of Workforce Rx. I hope you will join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce in America. Mm-hmm.